0: We'll open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, a story we seem to be fairly familiar with because everything from here <laughs> explains why we are the way we are, explains what's going on in the world. It all boils down to Genesis chapter 3. And is it not interesting that every other religion tells us we have to perfect ourselves, be good enough so that our good outweighs the bad, so that we get accepted into heaven, nirvana, whatever that religion calls it. It is only in Christianity that God comes down to man. We could never be good enough because perfection, holiness is required to be in his presence without his holiness and perfection consuming us. So Jesus Christ came to do what only he could do. Our second Adam. So let's keep that good news in mind as we get into Genesis chapter three and we begin to see how the evil one comes in to the perfect paradise of the garden. Lest we think we could have done better, we fail. They failed in perfection. (laughs) We would have done the same thing and we have inherited that same sin nature. We are dead inwardly until we come to know the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. God has literally written his story and his plan into all that he created. There are two genders, male and female, that reflect the grandeur of our creator. There is a higher calling than the things most people live for in this world, and it is to accurately reflect or image our creator to those around us. Our job is to display the image of God in its fullness, and we can't do that if male and female are not working together according to God's design. That's why it's so important that we get in the Word and we know what God originally intended. It's a design to be embraced. We're not living for our own reflection. Our whole point in living is to display the glory of God, which creates within me and within you the desire to submit to His design as a woman, as a female. Created in his image. We will see in Genesis 3 the reason why we and our world are decaying and dying. But could it be, now think with me on this one, that God originally intended for us to live with him in his presence and to grow in grace and knowledge and love and joy until, like Enoch, he just took us into his presence? Could Enoch be that example? of what God originally intended for us to walk with the Lord in such intimacy that he just draws us to himself. We're going to begin in Genesis 3 verses 1 through 5 as we look at the temptation of the evil one. Begin in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And you notice he's questioning God's word, but he always adds to it. He's making it look as though God's really holding out on us. Can you, not, can you eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman says to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. And she failed to say, From all the fruit in the garden we may eat except the one. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, just blatantly he flat out lies, you will not surely die. Oh no. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he's telling her, God's not good. God's holding out on you. And we know she's listening. He starts out by saying, did God say? He questions the word of God. And if there is There is not a more questioned book of the Bible than the book of Genesis because the enemy knows if he can discredit Genesis, everything else in the Word of God is brought into question as well. Then he just blatantly lies. Jesus calls him the father of lies. So we know these lies come from the evil one. And he convinced Eve that God was not good. Kenneth Matthews pointed out the personal presence of Yahweh Elohim. You notice in verses 1 through 5, It's just God. That's Elohim. It is not Lord God as it is in the rest of chapter 2 and it will be following in chapter 3. The personal presence of Yahweh Elohim among his people Israel was not an anomaly, but the pattern God inaugurated from the beginning. Conversely, the absence of the name Yahweh in the conversation between the serpent and the woman in the verses we just read where treachery is contemplated, shows that the relationship with God as covenant Lord is under assault. The enemy was attacking Eve at the point of her, not only her love, but her awareness of God as Lord and tempting her to want to be God. Christian psychologist Larry Crabb said, when Dyer's Desires become final goals. We chase after them with a fanatic zeal that not only blurs moral boundaries but also drains us of energy for pursuing anything else. We forget our higher calling. Now, Larry Crabb wrote the book Finding God after the death of his brother in 1991 in a commercial plane crash in Colorado Springs. He and his wife, Rachel, were actually in church that morning, and he got a phone call. They called the church, his dad did, and an usher came in to let him know. He had a phone call, and his father said, there's been an accident, Bill's been an accident at the airport. Would you go? Would you and Rachel? So he went and got his wife. They left. They got to the airport and found out that the plane had crashed just beyond the airport, just before it got to the airport, and everyone on board had died. And, of course, that realization That shock hit him so hard. And he shares in the book it would be a couple of weeks later that he would get up in the middle of the night unable to sleep. And it just hit him, the great loss they had experienced in losing his older brother Bill. What that did to their family dynamic. And he wept before the Lord. And as he wept, the Lord brought to his mind Hebrews 11 verse 6 that says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he's good and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. The enemy hits us in just the same way he hit Eve to make us believe that God is not good. And in his book, Larry Crabb kind of peels back the layers and he says, when you get to the inside of all of us, There's a clenched fist that says, I can't really trust you. I have to take care of myself. And that clenched fist is not just for God. It's also for those around us, those that we love, those that we depend on. That's what leads to trying to control (laughs) and make things work the way we think they're supposed to work out instead of how are we to live with the Lord like this, right? I think at the core of our being, we sometimes hear the voice of the enemy whispering to us that God's not good. That he can't be trusted. When in reality, he is the only good that there is. And he has prepared for us a restoration and a redemption of everything we have lost through sin in his life and everything we've been separated from through death. Bill's waiting on Larry in heaven. Because God is good. Because God is good, we have hope. Do I believe he's good? Because if I do believe he's good, Satan's tactics aren't going to work on me. But if at the interior of my being, my fist is still clenched and I'm not sure, I will fall to the tactics of the evil one. I will listen to his voice and I will believe his lies because I'm not believing and trusting God. I'm either going to trust the Lord or I'm going to go it on my own like Cain. I'm going to try to make life work apart from the Lord, which never works, (laughs) never works. It will be to my own pain and ultimate destruction if I try to go my own way. So let's look at Eve's reasoning in verse six. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now we talked about last week that Adam was created first, and we know that's significant because everything God does is significant. And so Adam is responsible. He's the federal head of the human race. Eve was taken out of Adam's side, we said, because he's the first Adam Sin was going to come through him, and so Eve had to be taken out of his side. She sinned as well, but she's taken from him, so she goes back to the first Adam as well. So sin comes through the first Adam, and it comes to everyone, to all of humanity. But she looks at it, and she's reasoning from the outside in instead of from the inside out. Because if she had been reasoning from the inside out, from her spirit man, she would have said, God said. And God is good. Look what all he's done for us. Instead, she was reasoning from the outside in, which is what we do even after we're saved, because that's our natural. Because before we're saved, we're dead spiritually. We can't reason or trust God from the inside out because we're not alive spiritually. And 1 Corinthians 2 says that the natural man, the lost person, cannot understand the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually appraised or understood. So it's not until we're saved that we come to life Internally, spiritually, and we connect spirit to spirit with God, and His spirit comes to live within us and seal us just like we talked, like we sang about. He seals us until eternity. So we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, but we have to learn how to live from the inside out, because we're accustomed to looking like Eve did and saying, "Oh, that looks good. Looks like it would taste good." And wow, it would make me wise. That's appealing to her intellect, her emotions. And so she takes, she eats, and she hands it to Adam, who's just standing there. It says he's with her. And he says nothing, he does nothing. And he eats. And the moment they do, their eyes are opened. Look at verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, what do we see happen here? The moment they disobeyed, Their eyes were opened to evil and suddenly shame hits. What does shame cause us to do? Cover ourselves. So what do they do immediately? They cover themselves from each other. And then we're going to see when God comes into the garden and they hear him walking in the garden among them as he did, they hide from God as well. Sin separates. Sin separates us from others and sin separates us from God. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 2.14 that Eve was deceived and Adam was not. So Adam was not deceived. He was the one who got the word, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, directly from God, had more than likely been the one who gave that information to Eve, and he's standing there knowing he shouldn't do it, and yet he willfully chose to disobey as well. Eve would be the one who said, let my will be done, and it would not be until Mary, the one who would be the, the seed of woman through whom the promised one of verse 15 would come. She would be the first one to say, Be it done to me according to your word. Will we be followers of Eve or followers of Mary? May we be those women who say, Lord, be it done to me according to your word. Today's reading, in my utmost for his highest, added this this morning. He said the nature of sin is not immorality and wrongdoing, but the nature of self-realization, which leads us to say, I am my own God. This nature may exhibit itself in proper morality or in improper immorality, but it always has a common basis, my claim to my right to myself. So let's look at God's mercy. Let's pick back up in 8, read eight through 15. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, do we see God taking the initiative? God comes after man, knowing he sinned, knowing he's in hiding. And he says to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go And dust you will eat, or lick the dust. In other words, you're going to be the lowest of the low all the days of your life. And I will put enmity. That means there will be hostility. And actively, you will actively oppose the woman, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, a mortal wound. Reference to Christ. You shall bruise him on the heel. And then jump to 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So we see the tender mercy of God who came after them. He clothed them, and then we're going to see he's going to remove them from the garden that he might redeem them. He called out to Adam, and he questioned him because of his responsibility as the leader in his marriage and ultimately over mankind. He was responsible. In the book Worthy by Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher, they make this observation. Furthermore, Adam shows a cruel indifference to the consequence Eve may suffer. He is willing to let her experience shame, blame, and punishment if it means he can escape it. This, the second recorded speech by the first man, is entirely different from his first recorded speech. In Genesis 2-23, he erupted in joyful song over the excellent gift of the woman, Now he uses crafty words to throw her under the bus. And we're going to see men do that throughout Scripture. And we still see it happening today. He is quite the opposite of Jesus, who stands between his bride and the wrath of God on the cross, bearing her sin, her shame, and her punishment. It's exactly what we looked at last week when we read this passage from Ephesians chapter five that commands the husbands to love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So Adam, immediately we see how sin has distorted and perverted their relationship. Instead of extolling her virtues, protecting her, being the leader, what does he do? He throws her under the bus. He thinks, well, it's her fault. She gave it to me, and you know what? Ultimately, it's yours because you gave her to me, right? Okay, God revealed from the beginning when he takes the animal skins and creates clothes for them that it would take the shedding of the blood of the innocent on behalf of the guilty to cover sin. And I've just given you some examples in the Old Testament as we move forward because we don't have clear teaching that God explained this to them. But obviously they understood that because that's the beginning of the sacrificial system. We see it with Abel's offering. He brings a blood offering. How would he have known to do that if God had not revealed that to them? Cain brings from the produce of the ground, so we know that it wasn't a blood offering, but it wasn't also the best. It just says he brought an offering. He obviously didn't bring the best, which Abel we know did. Noah, after the flood, he immediately builds an altar and he sacrifices from the clean animals to the Lord. So already they understood clean and unclean, even before Moses gave them the law. Abraham, the other patriarchs, built altars and offered sacrifices. After God called Abraham and brought him to the land of Canaan, the very first thing he did was to build an altar and make a sacrifice to the Lord. God gave Moses the instructions for the tabernacle and the entire sacrificial system. So we see that God established this to cover their sins and that the high priest would go into the tabernacle or the temple one day a year on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant, and their sins would be covered for another year. But it was foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, who doesn't just cover our sins but removes our sins. Now, let's take a look at life under the, under the curse. We've already seen what God said to the serpent. Let's pick back up in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. That just, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, may we only speak those things that edify and are true to the word of God, so that when they listen to our voice, it will be a good thing, (laughs) not judgment. "'Because you've listened to the voice of your wife "'and have eaten from the tree "'about which I commanded you, saying, "'You shall not eat from it. "'Cursed is the ground because of you. "'In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. "'Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, "'and you will eat the plants of the field. "'By the sweat of your face you will eat bread "'till you return to the ground, "'because from it you were taken, "'for you were dust, and to dust you shall return.'" Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now they knew they would ultimately die. They knew they would be expelled from God's presence. They would be separated. And yet because of verse 15, Adam names his wife Eve because she will be the mother of the living. They knew God had made a promise that through the seed of woman, would it be through Eve or would it be through Another woman, but God had made a promise that he was going to redeem them. So the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Here we see the Trinity again, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, and are you noticing we're seeing Lord God, Lord God in all of these scriptures past the temptation? Um, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the men out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So they are separated now from the paradise, the perfect place God had prepared for them, separated from God's presence and outside the garden. Wow. The word for desire, it says you will desire your husband, but he will rule over you. Part of Eve's, the curse that we live under as women. That word desire is used in two other places in the Old Testament. One is in Genesis 4-7. When God confronts Cain and basically asks him, you know, why is your countenance down falling? Why are you so down? If you do well, will it will not go well with you? And he's warning him, behold, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain does not listen to the warning of the Lord and chooses instead to act on his fleshly impulse through jealousy and anger, and he kills his brother Abel. So we see that sin's desire here, it's a negative desire desire. But it can also be like Song of Solomon 710. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. It can be love. It can be romantic desire. So I believe as women we have both. (laughs) Our desire is for our husbands romantically and out of love, but if he doesn't do what we want him to do, we will control, right? Like sin, (laughs) crouching at the door. Our desire can be for him to make things work according to our plan, to the way we want things to happen. And you know, as women... Outside of the garden, after the fall, we typically find our identity we mentioned this briefly last week in our roles. Our identity is not in our roles. Our identity is in who we are in Christ and who we are as image-bearers of the Father. As women, we have a tendency to fall into traps of comparison, competition and collection. Just look at the lives, the lives of Leah and Rachel. The two wives of Jacob, and see if they're not constantly comparing, competing, and collecting because they're rivals for his love and for their status. Women dress for other women because we're constantly comparing. You're not really dressing for your husband or for the guys that you're trying to impress. You're dressing to impress the women that you're going to be around. That's why social media is so successful and has us so hooked and addicted. What do you do on social media? You're comparing. You're, you're putting your picture up and you're seeing how many people like yours. Does yours look as good as this one? She's got more likes. She's got more followers. We're constantly comparing and competing and collecting. Okay, we cannot minister to someone we're comparing ourselves to and competing with. We're called to love one another just like Christ loves us. We're called to be known by our love for one another. So that means comparison, competition, all of it has to go to the wayside. We've got to die to that, refuse it in the name of Jesus Christ, and instead replace those thoughts with love for our neighbor, with a desire to see them do well, to succeed, to bless them, to encourage them. That's what God has called us to. We have to ask ourselves what is true and what is real. Instagram, Facebook, all of it. Most of it's not true or real. It is highly filtered. (laughs) What is true? What is real? Jesus Christ is truth. And if we know the truth, it is his truth that sets us free from comparison, competing, and collecting. Now, what about men? There's going to be toil. The ground is cursed. And so now he was already working and tending the garden, but now it's going to be difficult. There's going to be weeds and and there's going to be thorns and you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. Even by the time you're finished, you're still going to be sweating. It's going to be difficult, Adam. And not only that, you're going to go back to dust. You are going to die. You were created out of dust and to dust you will return. There's a very real... Physical meaning to the curse given to the serpent, that he's going to lick the dust. He's going to be the lowest of the low. But there's also a spiritual meaning. What is Adam made out of? Dust. The serpent will eat dust. He feasts on uncrucified flesh. It's the areas of our life that we have not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's that sin we're hanging on to that gives the devil an opportunity that gives him what the Bible talks about, a foothold in our lives, to erect a stronghold that then begins to control us instead of us being controlled and set free by the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives within our physical bodies. There is nothing God has called on us to do that he cannot accomplish in us and through us if we will die to our flesh, which is what Jesus told his followers. If you're going to come after me, you've got to deny yourself daily, Take up your cross and follow me. It is a daily death to the flesh so that I am alive to the Spirit and I'm not being controlled by the flesh. I'm not allowing the serpent to have a feast in my life. I'm gonna starve him out. (laughs) How about you? I want to confess any sin the Lord reveals so that he does not have a foothold in my life. Men typically derive their identity from their job, from how well they do, how successful they are, and they're comparing and competing One another just as we do. And I think our workaholic culture has stolen relational and recreational time from men and women because all of us have fallen prey to that. Man typically will respond to relational dysfunction by either becoming passive, withdrawing, and shutting down, or becoming aggressive and raging. We see that typically as sin pattern in men, whereas with women, because we have more words we have a tendency to annihilate with our tongues. So we have to die to our flesh that we might accurately reflect the goodness of our Creator. We're to be reflecting Him in our marriages, in our families, in the workplace, with our friends, with our neighbors, constantly asking, Lord, am I accurately reflecting You Do people see Christ in me in such a way that they want the fruit of the Spirit that's evident in my life? And when I pray over my house, many times I ask the Lord to loose the fruit of His Spirit in the very atmosphere of our home so that when people come in, they experience His love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We can't manufacture the fruit of the Spirit. We come to the end of our love joy, peace, and following. (laughs) But you will not come to the end of his. But the only way we can depend upon his and have his flowing through us is if we die to ourselves. So that his spirit takes over and it's his fruit that's flowing in our lives. You can't manufacture it. You can't create it. It is him. So it takes our surrender, our absolute abandon to God to his goodness, to his word, so that his spirit takes over and he flows through us. In fact, I love that the tree of life, you know, they're separated from the tree of life. They're put outside the garden. But the tree of life is in the new Jerusalem. And I know we looked at this passage previously, but we just can't pass it up today. It's just too good. 1 through 4 in Revelation 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him, and they will see His face. We will see Him, and we will partake of the tree of life. God, in His mercy, was removing them from the garden. Because what did he say? Lest they reach out and take from the tree of life and eat and be forever separated from God in their sinful condition. But as it is now, they're going to die physically, but they will not experience the second death if they're in Christ because his blood has been applied and we will be granted eternal life. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what is life like now? 2021, after the fall. What is our culture like? What do we see? Will you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, and we will see. It's exactly what Paul said was going on in Rome at the time. It's exactly the culture they were living in we're now living in as well. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them in our conscience and in nature. We look at nature, no, this cannot have just happened. There has to be a designer behind the design. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse... For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and forfeited animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity. What is God's wrath, His judgment? It is the removal of His hand of restraint. It's removing the restraint of His spirit. And when He does that, we're given over to depravity. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, verse 25, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen, for this reason... God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Listen to the sin he's listing here being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed... "...evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, we all know that in our inner being, in our conscience, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them." Why is sin celebrated in our culture? Because those who are living in sin don't want to feel convicted. They know that they know they're living in sin. They know that they're not right. They know there is a God and that there are moral absolutes. There is a right, there is a wrong, but they don't want to live under those moral absolutes. So instead, they celebrate their sin and encourage everybody else to join them because sin enjoys company because we want to feel better about ourselves. So if everybody else is living the same way and thinking the same way, then I'm not going to feel guilty or experience shame because of my sin. And yet we still do because we were created in the image of God and God has set eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes tells us, and we will experience shame and guilt because of our sin regardless of whether we call it sin or not. Look at the United States. Marriage is under assault and has been under assault for the last 50 years. Divorce rates have skyrocketed. The number of unwed mothers has skyrocketed. Fatherlessness has skyrocketed. There's an excellent resource, fatherhood.org, that you can get a lot of statistics on. But if that's one of the reasons we as the church need to come alongside single moms and we need to come alongside children who don't have a father in the home and men need to step in and help be that father figure because we are the family of God. We are not to live isolated Um, self-focused lives like the rest of the world. We're to live for Christ and for each other. We're to lay down our life for each other. We're to come around each other and bring each other in close. As supported by data on fatherhood.org, children from fatherless homes are more likely to be poor, become involved in drug and alcohol abuse, drop out of school and suffer from health and emotional problems. Boys are more likely to become involved in crime and girls are more likely to become pregnant as teens. Go to one of the most impoverished areas of our city and look for fathers. And you'll know why there's gang activity and drugs and violence and murder. It's the lack of the fathers in the home. It's because the enemy knows children need a father and a mother. And he also knows that that's the most stable structure for children to be raised in and for society as a whole. Sin breeds poverty. Sin breeds corruption, violence, abortion, murder, drug addiction, alcoholism, all those things. And part of the reason it does is because we're trying to numb our pain as we run from God. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Pew Research Center says that the share of U.S. adults who are married right now is at at an all-time low, 53%. But listen to this stat. 78% of those 18 to 29 say it's acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together. 78%. There's confusion over what it means to be male and female. We read in Romans 1 that that's part of being given over. There's depravity and unnatural desires that become commonplace. It is not our job, if you happen to be heterosexual, to condemn somebody who has same-sex attraction because that happens to be the area of their sin. Your sin may be pride. It may be something else. We all have sin. We're all separated from God. There's not a sin that's worse than another sin. It's just all sin. It all separates us. It all ends up leading to destruction. But if we're not those lovingly building bridges and sharing the gospel, how will they ever hear? If we cut off every person that has a perceived sin problem, how will they ever hear the good news of the gospel? Jesus did not do that. Dana shared this morning about what he did with the woman caught in adultery. He was the one who stepped in for her. He didn't condone her sin. We don't condone the sin. You still speak the truth, but you speak the truth in love, and you love the person while you love them to Jesus. That's what's supposed to set us apart. But instead, I'm afraid the church is getting caught up in the cancel culture all around us. And the cancel culture can be on the very liberal left who will cancel you if you're a conservative because you don't believe the way they do. And they're supposed to be tolerant. But they're not. Because now if we don't line up exactly the way they say we're supposed to line up, we get canceled. And I, we can't speak on a college campus or we can't do this or we can't do that because we don't line up. In fact, it's traumatizing for them to hear you speak something that doesn't line up with their way of thinking because they can't handle it. That's crazy. We have lost all sense of common sense. <laughs> We've lost our minds. But that's what happens when we're given over to a depraved mind. We don't think logically. It's, not, it's no longer common sense. There's political unrest and polarization. What happened to working across the aisle? What happened to trying to come to a solution? But instead, we just attack people, no longer issues, people. And it's coming into the church as well. Focus on issues. Don't ever attack a person. Focus on the issues. There's racial division. There's skyrocketing anxiety, depression, and suicide. Gen Z, those born after 1997, have the highest rate of anxiety, depression, and suicide of any previous generation. And many are linking it directly to social media, internet access, pornography, and all the things that suck people in and create addictions online. Steve and I spoke recently to Dr. Danny Aiken. In fact, I was actually picking his brain about Genesis chapter (laughs) 3. (laughs) <laughs> and the curse. And Steve said, I know who Danny Aiken will know. And he was so gracious to talk to me about it. But one of the things he said, he said, Donna, we're seeing it here at the seminary. He said, one of the questions they ask all prospective students is, do you feel like you have issues with sexual addiction or pornography? He said, for the men, 80% of them do. For the women, 60% of them do. He said, there was a time when it was negligible in women. He said, we can relate it to a lot of things. We have a sexually crazed culture, but the phone in your hand gives access to pornography 24-7. And these young people are getting sucked into that. These are believers. These are people going to seminary, training for the ministry that say this. He also says, many of the students will say, personally, I believe in heterosexual marriage, but who am I to tell others who they can love? Where is the voice of the God-fearers who will stand up and say, I love you, but thus says the Lord. This is for your well-being. This is for your flourishing. If you go against the design of God, you will be the one who is broken, not God's design, not God's word. I wanted to close with the paragraph from Larry Crabb's book, and you have a lot of resources down here. I've given you several books that are excellent because I know because of our culture and because so many of our children, 69% of our 12-year-olds have smartphones. 69% of our 12-year-olds have smartphones with unlimited access to everything the internet has to offer. And so consequently, many of them are getting sucked into some of these YouTube people who have become so popular that are influencing them, and that's why there is one book called Irreversible Damage. It's by Abigail Schreier, and she is not a believer. It's just research and statistics behind what is causing what they're calling right now rapid-onset gender dysphoria. These are teenage girls who have never doubted their femaleness until they become teenagers, and suddenly it becomes a trend among their peers, and now it's cool to question. It's cool to be bisexual. It's cool to be pansexual. It's cool. Did you know that there are actually only two genders, according to the Word of God? There's male and female. But did you know, that, according to several articles on the Internet, there are now 62? And then I listened to one that, told, that said there's actually like 300. How? In the world. But I don't want to make light of that. Because it's a very real issue and stronghold of the enemy, especially in this next generation. So we need to be equipped and aware. And we need to talk about these things with the next generation. And we need to tell them how blessed and beautiful it is to be created in the image of God. And as creator, he has the right to tell us how we're to image him. And that we need to surrender to his design for our lives. And it is that surrender that we will experience him. I know as a teenager, well, actually, by the time I was a teenager, I acted more like a girl. But I'm really brainwired more like a male. Do you realize there's a continuum in maleness and femaleness? Now, I am female biologically, so I am to reflect God as a female. But as an elementary school girl, I played with the boys. I played football. I think the first time I got the breath knocked out of me was I got tackled running with the football in, like, third grade. I could beat up all the boys on the playground. I could beat up anybody in arm wrestling until like the fifth grade. And I started thinking this guy in my class was kind of cute. And I thought, it's probably not a good idea to beat him in arm wrestling. (laughs) Maybe I need to back off a little bit. But, you know, like sixth grade, the boys start really passing the girls anyway. So I probably couldn't have done it past that. But what I'm saying is, by the way, I lived and acted. I mean, in my neighborhood, I climbed trees. I ran. I played sports with the boys. I didn't, you know, I would play Barbie some, but I wasn't, I was a tomboy. Somebody could have observed me and said, you're probably a boy trapped in a girl's body. That is what's happening today in our kindergartens. 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 So don't do the ostrich technique. We can't do that anymore. Where you stick your head in the sand and pretend like it's not happening and maybe it will just pass over. No. We're too far gone for that. We have to know what's going on. We have to equip ourselves in the Word of God And we have to be willing to reach out into a culture that's hurting. Remember, anxiety, depression, suicide, skyrocketing. They're broken, they're hurting, they know it, but they don't know the answer is Jesus. And we have the answer. We have the good news of the gospel. So that has to be our focus. Every single person is an eternal soul created in the image of God with infinite worth. Infinite worth. Now listen to this. One day, we move from this world to the next. And our Lord's going to greet us with a bear hug. And we're going to collapse before him in reverence and wonder. But his embrace will keep us close. He laughs and says, look behind you. And there's our brother who died years ago, happier than we've ever seen him. And our parents and our miscarried baby. And Dr. Luke and Elijah and Enoch. Now we're laughing (laughs) We can't stop. And the sweetest voice in all creation says, Welcome. You're finally home. We're headed home. We're passing through. Live for Jesus. Live for Jesus. He is our only hope, but he is the greatest hope. May we worship him because he is faithful.